Hello and welcome to PwC's IFRS Talks, your source for all things IFRS. I am your host, Laura Kennedy, and in this episode, I'm joined by Andy Wiggins, a tax partner at PwC UK, and Gary Berkowitz, a partner in PwC's global corporate reporting team. And today, Andy and Gary are going to talk us through a key piece of the puzzle in the OECD's measures to tackle tax avoidance by multinational enterprises, global minimum taxes. Hi, Andy. Hi, Gary. Thank you for joining us today on IFRS Talks. Andy, welcome to the podcast. And Gary, welcome back. So... Today, we're going to be talking about global minimum tax rules, pillar two. We're going to touch on what the rules are, the practical challenges companies are facing with those rules. And of course, this is a financial reporting podcast, so it wouldn't be complete if we didn't also talk about the possible accounting impacts. And some of our listeners might be starting to think about those as we move closer towards December year ends. But before we go into all of that, Andy, could you share with us the backdrop of how these global minimum taxes came to be? What was their primary purpose? Thanks, Laura. And uh, thank you for having me. So governments a number of years back decided that alongside the OECD, that there was an ongoing competitive race to the bottom of tax rates that large multinational corporates were not necessarily paying the right amount of tax. And so there was an initiative to look at base erosion and profit shifting within the OECD. And there was a big exercise looking at specific areas of tax and a lot of rules introduced a number of years ago. And then there was a couple of areas that were not covered. So digital taxes and a minimum tax. And so a project was set off to look at digital taxes, so digital services taxes. A lot of our tax regimes were built, you know, Second World War and haven't really progressed in the same uh, sort of way, dealt with physical location of people. And so didn't deal with a lot of the evolving digital world that we're in today. And so Pillar One was sort of born. And then off the back of that, there was a can everyone have a minimum tax rate to stop this race of governments reducing their corporate income tax rates? So, and that was that created Pillar 2. Fantastic. So the idea global minimum tax sounds to me quite simple if there's just one number and everyone applies it, but knowing tax, that's probably not the case. So how do the rules work? Yeah, that, you're absolutely right. Uh, sort of a very very high level it sounds quite straightforward doesn't it so as you know tax is very much dealt with on a country level basis taxing rights are a country prerogative it's the 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 local local jurisdiction that levies them so to create a global tax is quite difficult because everybody deals with their rules differently and so to get this 15 percent was seen to be the right level a completely different way of viewing how to calculate tax was was needed and so for the first time rather than relying on 
entity, legal entity, statutory numbers to work out your tax return. The pillar two rules, the globe rules, as they're called, were created based on the consolidated financial statements. So this is the first time the tax returns are going to be ultimately based on whatever happens in the consolidated financial statements rather than the entity, because that gives a a North Star, a point of reference that is audited, that is consistent across the world. It's consistent insofar as they're saying, so long as it's an acceptable gap, so IFRS, US gap, and then a list of other acceptable gaps. And, and that is a fairly fundamental shift in the tax world from going looking at those entity accounts to 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 those to those group accounts and it's a a really clever way and in some ways that they've created this there's sort of three layers of of rules so there is the first sort of layer that is that there's an income inclusion rule iir so that says your parent territory can do a bunch of calculations and I'll come on to those calculations to as to how that 15% is calculated but but you, your parent territory and that is defined by reference to accounting standards so keep looking up through your group as far as you can until you get to the top company that controls under accounting definitions and then everything underneath that you have to do a calculation on a territory basis to work out a 15% as to whether your tax rate is higher or lower than that. And that income inclusion rule would then mean that that parent territory gets to pick up any tax associated with any territory underneath that in that consolidated group that isn't paying 15% tax calculated in a specific way. And so it's giving taxing rights essentially to a different territory for a subsidiaries profits that's the first rule and and that is where where a lot of countries at the moment are are looking to implement for 24 um some are implementing in 25 there is then the second rule which is sort of a backstop rule which is the under tax payments regime that allows any company within a consolidated group to to pick up the tax for everybody else in the group that sort of forces everybody to think about the regime in a lot more uh, detail because if you for example were in a territory where the parent had not adopted these rules then you might feel well i'm relatively safe under the income inclusion rule you have to follow follow that income inclusion rule down through the group but as long as you're not underneath the country that has implemented an income inclusion rule you, you wouldn't be you wouldn't be getting a top-up tax. But here the UTPR kicks in and says anybody in your group, you can pick up anybody's tax, and then it sort of becomes a bit more of a free-for-all. Those rules are on a one-year delay. So the income inclusion rules, you know, as I say, a lot of countries, UK, Europe, etc., are implemented for 24, and then the UTPR would come in in 25. Um, again, that second rule is giving taxing rights essentially for a different country in in the country that's implemented the UTPR. So they then created the third layer, which is the qualifying domestic minimum top-up tax. 
So this is a domestic, the clue's in the name, this is a domestic tax, which is based off of the same calculations and same uh, methodology as the first two, but would be a local tax. And so it, it gives encourages countries to implement a local tax because otherwise somebody else is going to get taxing rights over the profits that are generated in your jurisdiction. And so the first two drive countries to implement QDMTTs. And so we're starting to see, and UK, Europe, implement QDMTTs, at which point there is no top-up tax under the income inclusion rule because you've got QDMTT, the local territories are picking it up. Um, And it was a way of encouraging countries to implement that minimum 15% tax rate a critical part of all of that is is how do you calculate this 15%? So that 15% is not your statutory, statutory rate. Okay, so it's important to think it's not my statutory rate. And then they said, you know, although we're going from the consolidated financial statements, we don't really like consolidated uh, financial accounting either. And we're going to create a bunch of adjustments to those consolidated financial statements, both for the profit number as well as the the numerator so it's not the accounting etr either so you can have a an accounting etr that's higher than 15 you can have a statutory rate higher than 15 but you can still have a globe specifically calculated etr for this purpose to be below 15 so so there's a bunch of mechanics to to, to get you there and then the other the other important point is that that this applies to companies with revenues and uh, speaking to a lot of uh, accountants we're, we're not talking revenue per definition of a first 15 we're talking any form of income revenue so interest income gains fair values all of those types of things any consolidated group that has more than 750 million euros and there are specific rules around the exchange rate to use and everything else for for that uh to to determine whether you are within these rules so um yes uh i think you originally said laura this is this is complicated yes it is complicated (laughs) absolutely and so based on what you said andy even if in theory all countries were to change their tax rate it it wouldn't um, take away that complexity because of the way the 15% is calculated. Correct. And, and I guess, you know, an important point is, is that to try and simplify all that complexity, there are some short term safe harbor rules that, that, that the OECD have introduced, and then they're planning on introducing some longer term safe harbors. One of which might be if you've got a qualifying domestic minimum top up tax, then you don't have to apply the rules. Again, encouraging people to implement a countries to implement a qualifying domestic minimum top up tax. And Andy, you mentioned that there will be adjustments to the accounting numbers to calculate the effective tax rate. How does that work with the different gaps that you mentioned? So would that bring the different gaps more in line after the adjustments? Yeah, so the OECD's done quite a bit of work to to make sure that where there are gap differences um, mainly focused on IFRS and US GAAP. A lot of those adjustments have, have brought everything back to something similar, tax base, so that you shouldn't get any advantage or disadvantage depending on which GAAP you're, you're using. 
And you mentioned a lot of complexity and practical challenges there. If I had to ask you to list on your hand, what are the top practical challenges that companies are looking into at the moment? What are they? So the first place to start is probably around scope. So having been very clear earlier around it's the highest entity that controls based on accounting definition, that top entity could be a trust. It could be a partnership. It could be something that doesn't isn't required to prepare consolidated accounts because it's privately owned in a jurisdiction that doesn't require consolidated accounts, in which case the rules basically deem a set of consolidated accounts and it is still subject to the rules. So, so identification of where the top company is in your group can be quite challenging sometimes. So there's lots of discussions and, and uh, debates around, around that. The, the, the one that uh, lots of people are also looking at um, immediately is these safe harbors that I just mentioned to you. So there are um, three safe harbors that, that the OECD has introduced, um, one around really small companies so where you've got a country that's less than 10 million of revenue and 1 million of profit then you don't need to do the calculations for them so it sort of helps with that complexity point you've got then a calculation around simplified ETR so using some numbers that are more readily available from your country by country report that most people have had to be filing with the tax authorities privately for a number of years, then there's a more simplified way of calculating the 15%, but that's only a three-year safe harbor to ease people into the rules. And so lots of people looking at how are they going to get that data together? And and then there's a, a substance-based income inclusion rule that that allows um, companies to, if they're making losses, then in that jurisdiction, then you're automatically allow, allowed through it and don't need to do a calculation. So that is a real area of focus because it's a simplification of, of going through the full rules. The full rules, the reason why they want to avoid the full rules, everybody, is because we've, we've released a data ca- catalogue there's a maximum um, of sort of something like 240 data points per legal entity that you need to capture in order to do these calculations. Wow. So take take the number of legal entities in your group. And when I say legal entity, that includes where you've got a branch. So a branch would be a separate legal entity for this purpose to, to, to a company and partnerships and so on. So everything in your group and multiply it by 240 is the sort of number of data points that you might have, which is quite a lot for a lot of groups. So, so systems and collation of those, that, that, that information is, 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 is mind boggling. So everybody's trying to get into those safe harbors rather than having to worry too much about all of, all of those main rule calculations. And with that then, Gary, maybe moving on to the accounting with all that complexity, Already, I think people would say taxes and particularly deferred taxes are often one of the most complex areas of accounting. And listening to Andy, it sounds like this might make it even more complex. So what would you share with people on the accounting side? Hey, Laura, thanks. Um, Yeah, and uh, for those who haven't been following this closely from an accounting perspective, as Andy was just describing that, you were probably really worried because you were probably thinking, how on earth am I going to calculate the deferred tax 
that I'd need to determine on each of these entities or countries in which in the future I might have to pay more than my statutory rate of 9 or 10%. Um, and I guess, you know, when Pillar 2 first came out, that was a question that luckily it was front of mind for us accountants. And so we started having a think about it and we actually, the ISB picked this up as well. And they thought about whether or not it would actually make sense to try and calculate, if it, even if it was possible, to try and calculate, measure and recognize deferred tax for Pillar 2 or Globe. And I think just based on what Andy's saying, I think the ISB quickly came to the conclusion that determining whether or not you actually have any deferred tax consequences in territories where they potentially would be impacted by, by the Pillar 2 requirements by Globe, and then also trying to calculate that number and then the usefulness of that number, because as Andy said, it's not just I'm going to always pay 15% compared to my uh, effective tax rates or my accounting ta- uh, tax rate there. Because there's all these adjustments to Globe, you actually don't know what tax rate you're actually going to pay in the territory if you're picked up by Globe. So I think the great news is that the you know sense prevailed and, and good job to the, to the ISB. I think the good news is that the ISB issued a, an exemption um, in IS-12 to uh, the recognition, measurement, or disclosure of any deferred tax implications that may arise from the Pillar 2 requirements. And that is both for just the global rules that Andy was talking about, but also those qualifying domestic minimum top-up taxes that Andy mentioned as well. So to the extent that companies are either caught by Globe or, or they have qualifying domestic minimum top-up taxes, um, I'm not going to try and do the short version that Andy did because I'm going to mess it up, QMDTTs or whatever. Um, to the extent that they have those, again, the, the exemption precludes you from recognizing or disclosing information related to, to that. So that is, as I say, I think good news. Everyone is breathing a sigh of relief that although, the, as Andy said, just the complication of working out the actual tax consequences are going to be incredibly challenging. The good news is you don't have to try and do that for, for deferred tax. Is that How long will that exemption last, Gary? Oh, that's a good question, Laura. So although they said it's a temporary exemption, and I think the reason the ISB said this uh, is because, you know, for some people it felt, was that the right thing to do? Does it make sense to actually have an exemption for for this item? And I think the ISB was trying to respond quickly to what folks identified as a very, very real practice issue. Because again, as Andy said, you know, a lot of countries were substantively enacting the requirements, either planning to do it in 2023 when the requirements first came out, but then they said actually we'll make it 2024. But if folks will recall that you need to start recognizing deferred tax from when taxes are substantively enacted, not from when they're effective. And so if the ISB hadn't moved quickly, you might have been in a position where for maybe a couple of years, you would have had to try and calculate the deferred tax um, while the ISB decided, does this make sense and did a, a huge amount of outreach and analysis so I think, again, they made the right call, they moved quickly, and they said, we think this is the right approach for now, but we'll call it a temporary exemption um, based on the fact that it was a decision that was made relatively quickly, and we'll see how things play out in the future. I think the idea there is that if they feel that investors are lacking really important information that they should have, and once Pillar 2 is implemented, we understand the complexity and the implications of trying to calculate deferred tax, they might reconsider it. But if I was a betting man, I would say this exemption is here to stay. Okay, so that's good news on the deferred tax front. Gary, when people are looking at anything else in the accounting space, is there anywhere else there might be impacts? Yes, yeah, so we've had a couple of couple of other points maybe worth raising, and I'm sure more will come through because, you know, we first need to understand the tax consequences. And, uh, you know, Andy's done a great job of doing it, but uh, 
de describing in summary, but I know the tax folks are really still working through how these requirements are going to work. And then clearly we need to account for that. So the accounting is generally going to follow the tax. But a couple of the things that we've already been talking about is just consideration of impairment. Um, as we think about a, a cash generating unit or a CGU, you know, the fact now that there potentially is going to be an additional tax burden if you are caught by pillar two in that CGU, how does that impact the way that I do my impairment testing? And I guess there's maybe a couple of thoughts that I've got here. We haven't really concluded on this, but the one would be, you folks just think about how you do a value and use calculation. In theory, that's supposed to be a pre-tax calculation in any event. So the fact now that there might be additional tax consequences on the entity, in theory, shouldn't alter the way in which you consider the recoverable amount. And again, there's some, I know this is a tax, we're doing a tax podcast, not an impairment podcast, but the, you know, the ISP does say theoretically, if you calculate the recoverable amounts on a pre-tax basis using a pre-tax discount rate, you shouldn't necessarily get a different answer to discounting post-tax cash flows on a post-tax discount rate. So maybe there's a school of thought that it shouldn't necessarily make a huge difference. But again, then other complications come in that if you say, but if I am doing a fair value, less cost to sell a recoverability calculation, then that is a post-tax calculation. Where should you actually consider the tax burden to sit? Does it sit in the CGU in the country in which pillar two kicked in? Or should you put the tax consequence in the parent or the sister subsidiary where the tax is actually collected? And again, the, you know, I think the, the, this, there's still discussions, but I think in this case, in, at this point in time, folks are tending towards thinking it's the country that generated the, the pillar two implications rather than the country that collects it. But then you get onto the follow-on question, which is, well, which entity in the group, if I'm thinking of my separates, and this is my second, second point from an accounting perspective that we're thinking about, which entity in the group in their separate financial statements should actually book the tax expense? Should it be pushed down and recognized in the country and the jurisdiction, again, that generated the pillar two implication? Or should it be booked in the country uh, of the entity that's actually going to pay the tax? So clearly the credit cash to the tax authority is in the entity that pays the cash. But the question is, where does the debit tax expense go? Does that go in the parent entity or should that go um, imputed and get pushed down into the subsidiary below. Again, the jury's still out. Watch this space. Again, uh, my personal views, I think it should be in the parent because uh, we already know the credit to cash goes there. Um, so legally, they paid the tax. But uh, as I say, we're still uh, we're still thinking about that one and, and, and watch watch the guidance that we put out when we, when we conclude. But I think, again, the, the important point there is, I think, link back to some of what Andy said, it might actually become a non-starter because over time, a lot of jurisdictions are going to actually change their local tax rules and their local qualifying domestic minimum top-up taxes to stop that tax leakage out of their country. And so hopefully by the time we enact Pillar 2, you'll be in a position where all countries will have ensured that they pay the tax in the country where the Pillar 2 um, tax was generated from. So it might, we might not have to answer that accounting question in the future. So it might just become a, a good theoretical question. Thanks, Gary. Always good to bring some debits and credits into an accounting podcast. Uh, but alongside the debits and credits, there's always qualitative information as well. So given you mentioned all the moving parts, do we have a sense of what investors would be expecting to see in terms of disclosures, particularly coming up to year ends that are soon? Yeah, another great question, Laura, because obviously when, as I mentioned before, the, you know, the ISB always had you know, investors' informational needs in mind. And if you think about if you're not going to recognize any deferred tax numbers, there's a potential informational lack uh, there in terms of well, what's the future impact going to be? Is this group going to be subject to pillar two? How much are they going to have to pay? What's it going to do to my tax expense? And so 
There are some very specific disclosure requirements that come along with that, that exemption that I mentioned, and they kick in from the 31st of December onwards. And I think the idea is it's almost there's a two-stage process. You know, in, in between the period of time that um, the exemption applies and the tax has been substantively enacted, but it isn't yet effective. So in other words, you know that in the future, territories you operate in are going to be subject to Pillar 2, but it hasn't yet become effective. You know, the ISP has said you need to disclose then what what you, you expect the tax consequences of Pillar 2 to be. So not deferred tax, but just do I think I'm going to be caught by, by the scope, as Andy mentioned? And if so, have I got a sense of what countries might be impacted and do I have a sense of how much I might have to to pay. So that's the, the how much, I, yeah, what, what might be the additional tax burden on my group as a result of Pillar 2. That's the one kind of disclosure that's been brought in um, along with the exemption. And I think there, you know, the million dollar question is going to be, you know, how much information are companies going to provide? Because I think, again, there, the ISB was, or the standard, the amendment's pretty clear that it can be both qualitative and quantitative. And I think, again, if you just reflect on what Andy said, 240-odd data points times by X number of entities, this is not the kind of thing you can do on the back of a matchbox. And so I think our expectation is maybe some of it will depend on how close your jurisdictions are to implementing Pillar 2 or making it substantively enacted or effective, because clearly by the time it's effective, you're going to have to know this. And so potentially the, the degree or granularity of the information is going to change over time. You know, if my country or the, the countries I operate in only are only going to make it effective in 2027. I'm, I'm just using it hypothetically. You know, probably I've got a longer time to get ready, and my information will be quite quite qualitative in the early years, and only become quantitative later. So that's a very roundabout way of saying, you know, we, we're not expecting hard numbers for most companies in December 2023 because they are at a relatively early stage of doing what is, as Andy described, a massive undertaking. Um, so that's the one angle of the disclosures I mentioned. The other one is then once you once Pillar 2 is effective in the jurisdictions that you operate in, which I don't think that's the case yet, but once you are paying top-up taxes, I think you are required then also to disclose how much of the tax in the current year related to Pillar 2. So again, giving folks an understanding of how much of my tax expense or the tax that went out the door actually related to Pillar 2 and the jurisdictions in which you operate. So I think there's two pieces as I say, I think the, the bigger challenge immediately is just the, 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 the explanation or the description of what the future impact might be when Pillar 2 becomes implemented. And as I say, December 31 of this year is going to be the first time that folks need to start providing that disclosure. So if there's one takeaway or two takeaways from this podcast, first one is, like Andy said, this is complicated and hard stuff. And the second one is you're going to need to provide some disclosure in your uh, 31 December 2023 annuals. Thanks, Gary. And thanks, Andy. I think you've both given us a lot to think about. Taxes always exciting. And generally, I would always end on the podcast with where would you send people to get more information? Well, from an accounting perspective, we've got an in-depth out there on um, on, on Pillar 2. But I think, uh, Andy, there's quite a bit more from the tax side. Yeah, so we've got a, uh, we've got a, a website which has got a tracker of which rules are being implemented in which, in which territory and so whether there is a qualifying domestic minimum top-up tax in a jurisdiction you can click on a, a map and find your way around as, as everyone likes a map and then uh, it's got a bunch of other flyers and things around the data catalog the 240 data points and all those types of things so uh, we can 
point people towards that. Fantastic. We can include a link to both of those pieces of guidance alongside the podcast. Okay, so with that, thank you, Andy. Thank you, Gary. Much appreciated joining us. Thank you. And thank you to our listeners. To never miss an episode of IFRS Talks, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, happy accounting. This podcast has been brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers, LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitution for consultation with professional advisors.